how do I get out of this? Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing how we can support struggling readers. But first, Chris, what's you reading for? Hey, what you reading for? So this week I have reread for about the ninth or tenth time a brilliant blog by Scott H. Young, uh, which is on the subject of the construction integration model. It's called How Does Understanding Work? Which I think is a if you if you want to get a sense of what he does as a writer, at least from the blogs that I've read, you can get a sense of it from the way that this subject matter relates to the title, because we're talking about something as complex as uh, Kinch's model of how we comprehend text, and yet he's framed it as, how does understanding work? It is provocative, it's punchy, and it seeks to take something really complicated and simplify it in a really engaging way. And that's exactly what he does in this blog. What's wonderful about it is that it's a follow-up blog to one where he talks about comprehension from a different angle. He talks about the idea of understanding not through kind of text comprehension or discourse analysis, he talks about understanding in a way that's maybe more familiar to people who are interested in learning. He talks about um, things relating to uh, working memory and in particular looks at the, a way of understanding, understanding by looking at it as problem solving. So it takes that as its paradigm for understanding comprehension. But in this blog, which was the first of his that I came to, he's taking the paradigm, as it were, as being um, understanding as text comprehension. It, it's wonderful. It's beautifully written. Even if you just read it to learn how to take a complicated subject and write about it in an interesting way, I'd highly recommend it. But if, in particular, if you've heard people like me or Neil talking about situation models and uh, mental models when it comes to comprehension more generally, this is the blog for you. One last little thing I'll say about it is that um, I know that people quite rightly have criticisms of the idea of mental models in that people often use a word like, or a phrase like mental model as just a way of saying knowledge or understanding. And there's not much more behind it. I think when it comes to reading, there is more to it. There is certainly um, a reason to talk about mental models or, or building a situation model rather than just talking about stuff I've learned and I hope that this blog is the one to convince you of the worth of this idea so definitely check it out what about you Kieran what are you reading for I mean when people properly talk about mental models they're talking about the connections between lots of different equally sometimes important ideas so I think yeah um, it'd be pretty interesting to see how that uh, that discussion continues at the start of the year I promised that we would look for design and technology and the subjects that are sort of underserved, so to speak. And I find on, I think it's Curriculum 101 is the name of Mary Myatt's Substack. And she's got Subject Insights, Design and Technology. And it's a really interesting read. I certainly want to learn more about design technology. And this sort of gives you a really good overview of sort of where the subject is coming from. And then I think it's going to, it's almost like an entry point into, well, how can I take my existing pedagogy and my existing beliefs and sort of match it up with what's available in the in the world of design and technology? Because very important uh, sort of field, um, and as we said, very under underserved field. So yeah, I, I think definitely check that out. Sign up to Mary Substack because it's a, it's always really good value. So this week we're going to focus our attention on how we can support struggling readers, which I know is something that the whole way through my career, I have wondered about, only really find out how to be effective after the fact and through conversations with yourself, which is um, a great irony in, in my career. 
but who better to talk to than, than you, Chris, about this uh, about this subject? And I think, as always, it makes sense to start with definitions so that we're really clear about what it is we're talking about. What do we mean by struggling readers? Yeah, that that is the question because there is no, you know, you can't take a seven-year-old and say, okay, this is where they're supposed to be as a reader or an 11-year-old and say, this is where they're supposed to be. There's no document somewhere that lists what people should be able to do with reading or with any aspect of learning that we do in school beyond the national curriculum. It's all pretty arbitrary. So for me to say, oh, this seven-year-old is a struggling reader, it's relative. It's me saying, okay, compared to the rest of the class, the rest of the children that I'm working with, the children that I've worked with across the rest of my career, this this pupil is struggling to read compared to them. Now, you might say, well, doesn't that throw the whole notion of a struggling reader into doubt? What's the, the value in it? Well, the nature of teaching is that Yes, sometimes we get to do one-to-one interventions uh, one intervention, and we get to work with small groups, but most of the time we're working with 30 pupils. We are providing support for 30 or more kids at a time. And so it matters if some pupils are significantly behind because it behind their peers, I should say, because it becomes much more difficult to um, support them within that classroom structure. Equally, even though we're talking about this in relative terms, it's still a fairly useful way of saying, well, this is a pupil who could do with more support. This is a a sensible place to target the limited resources we have in schools. So we can say, yes, we can use the phrase struggling readers. And I think it is a worthwhile phrase to use. And the question then becomes, well, how do we define a struggling reader? Now, this is kind of where my own biases, if you will, or my own way of understanding reading has to be clearly enunciated. I think of the development of reading as the development of interconnected bodies of knowledge and skills that are required to be an expert reader. Now, broadly, we can think of that in terms of the skills and knowledge required to recognize words and the skills and knowledge required to build meaning from words as um, shown in things like the simple view of reading. But it's worth noting that these bodies of knowledge can be further analyzed into subcomponents and that these two bodies of knowledge are deeply and increasingly interconnected over time. So when I'm talking about a struggling reader, what I'm really saying is there is, um, in, in these bodies of knowledge required to be a reader, there is a pupil or a set of pupils whose um, who, are, who have a, an aspect of those bodies of knowledge that is less developed than their peers, and that would be a sensible thing to target, to help them with. So when I'm in short, when I'm talking about a struggling reader, I'm saying there's an aspect of this kind of body of knowledge and skills that is required to be an expert reader that this pupil hasn't got as well developed as their peers. And that's kind of how I think about it. And if we're looking into that body of knowledge... We've outlined it and discussed it across the three or four reading episodes that we've done in the past. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's. I, I would be um, silly of me to kind of recapitulate that entirely to talk about, you know, exactly how we uh, recognise words and how we develop as fluent readers, the aspects of um, language comprehension. So, if you want to get deeply into that, uh, then go back to previous episodes, particularly the first one on reading. We talked about fluency in particular, reading comprehension. But this will, I I think, um, stand alone as an episode, as well as, I hope, building on um, what's come before. How can assessment be used to help us support struggling readers? Obviously, from what I've said there about there being these um, aspects of knowledge and skills that are less well-developed relative to their peers, it makes it clear that we need to know what these aspects of knowledge and skills are that aren't there, which says, okay, so how do we find out? And there is an extent to which the day-to-day classroom teaching that we do can support us in recognizing those things. You know, you work with a group of pupils day in, day out, you begin to recognize whether they have issues relating to recognizing individual words, whether they can um, whether what their vocabulary is like, what their knowledge of the world is like, 
whether they have experiences with different kinds of texts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That said, we shouldn't be relying upon that. When we're thinking about a, a school-wide basis, what we really need is something systematic. And by that, I mean something that engages with every pupil and does so on a in a predictable way. It shouldn't be the case that a pupil only we only find out about a pupil's issues with um, decoding polysyllabic words or reading fluency or whatever it might be because um, a teacher has got you know is eagle-eyed um, and particularly sensitive to this stuff. Like I say, it's really helpful for teachers to understand reading and the the bodies of knowledge and skills that underpin it so that they can support with these informal assessments but we need something systematic now what does that look like in most primary schools that i've seen at the moment there is something systematic in place but only in how it relates to standardized reading comprehension assessments it tends to be the case that most schools have got an assessment like you know nfer or gl or um, all sorts of companies available where you will do a comprehension assessment and it will spit out the other side of it a reading age and in some cases it will attempt to spit out things like oh this person struggles with answering retrieval questions or making predictions and if you, for those who have listened to the previous podcasts you'll understand why i think that kind of stuff is a pretty bogus way of looking into kids reading but what it does do is provide us as i say with you know, things like reading ages, a standardized score relating to comprehension. Now, thinking about how I started, how we started the podcast, you'll recognize that, of course, that's still relative. A reading age of eight years and three months just means that a kid is, that's where like an average eight years, three month old child will be. But it's still useful information, um, not least for, you know, thinking about whether your reading curriculum is generally doing what you want it to do. What it isn't useful for, particularly, is working out exactly what aspects of reading a pupil is struggling with. It can tell us that there's maybe an issue. It can tell us that a pupil is potentially significantly behind where we would hope them to be, but it can't tell us why. And this is where other aspects need to come into our systematic way of addressing reading comprehension. But we have to be pragmatic. We could do you know, 10, 15, 20 different kinds of assessment, looking at aspects of vocabulary and aspects of text structure, etc. But that's never going to happen. It's going to take too long. And we're going to lose actual time to do the teaching because we're always assessing. So what do we need other than comprehension in this systematic approach? Well, I would make the argument, and I know many others would as well, that we need some kind of fluency assessment in there. Now, you can find fluency assessments online, things like die bells and there are products you can buy and in some cases they look really sensible and useful but at heart a fluency assessment is you just hearing a pupil read from a roughly age appropriate text and working out roughly how many words correct per minute they are reading now you can compare that again roughly to their peers and it will give you a sense of where their reading fluency is at especially if you combine that with an understanding of What's their prosody like? In other words, when they're reading aloud, does it sound like a natural spoken voice compared to their peers? Obviously, we'll generally expect more a more developed sense of prosody from a 10-year-old than we would from a 7-year-old, for example. But you can hear a pupil read aloud for a little period of time, get a sense of roughly how quickly they're reading, how accurate that reading is, and whether it sounds like a natural spoken voice. And the useful thing about this is it tells you, it begins to tell you what to do next. So let me talk about this a little bit more. If their fluency looks fine, you know, it's not significantly um, troubling you compared to a pupil's peers, then they're probably on track with their reading. But if the one thing to keep an eye on is if their fluency seems fine relative to their peers, but comprehension definitely isn't it's you know way out of line with that then there might be a couple of things to look at it might be that vocabulary or background knowledge is something to look into it might also be and this happens very occasionally it might also be that their comprehension um is something that they've not really taken charge of 
they've done lots of reading where they're kind of reading aloud and they just haven't developed this sense that making sense of text is what they're supposed to do. And you can support that sense of responsibility, this sense of active comprehension by um, thinking about teaching them comprehension strategies. Now you could do that in the classroom, you can do that in interventions, but what you're effectively doing there is getting them to do things like summarize bits of text, que um, ask questions about bits of text, just awakening them to the idea that they need to make sense of text themselves. Now that's, in the, that's what you should do in the rare case where you've got a relatively fluent reader, but comprehension isn't where you want it to be. But that's pretty rare. Now, the, the real reason or the main reason why fluency assessments are such a valuable part of, a, of this systematic approach is what you can do then when you realise that a pupil's fluency isn't where you want it to be. It is significantly behind age-related expectations. It's significantly behind their peers. Because let's say you've got 20% of pupils who you think, yeah, fluency really isn't where I, I want it to be for this age group. You now have a pupil, a group of pupils that you can target other forms of assessment at. In particular, you can say, well, I'm going to look at their decoding of individual words. I'm going to see whether they have the code knowledge that allows them to recognize words, whether they can uh, blend sounds within words, whether they can blend phonemes. Is that an issue? And it commonly is. Or perhaps they're fine with that, but they struggle with polysyllabic words, decoding words with multiple syllables. And maybe that's what you want to work on. Or maybe you realize that actually they're fine with all of that. Decoding individual words, great, no problem. But they're still disfluent compared to where I'd expect them to be at this um, stage of um, in their education. So maybe they need practice. You know, they need um, fluency. They need practice in uh, which is monitored which is guided, which perhaps has some modeling as part of it to make sure that they're developing reading fluency. So in short, the great thing about having fluency as the centerpiece of this systematic system is that it either says, no, fluency is fine. Let's just check may maybe whether comprehension is an issue. Or it tells you that actually fluency is a bit of a problem for this pupil or these pupils. I wonder whether there is something underpinning this in terms of phonics. And if there is, when it comes to decoding, something underpinning in terms of phonics, you might do a phonics assessment to check that, which will look at code knowledge, blending and segmenting, or in other words, phonemic skills. And it might look at um, decoding of polysyllabic words if it's a really good assessment. It might look at those individual things and allow you to target interventions. Or, as I say, it might say to you that, you know what, that stuff's fine. It's just monitored reading practice that these kids need. Just one very quick thing to notice, which uh, which I, uh, sorry, one quick thing to mention, which I really like about fluency assessments is that once you've done a few of them, you begin to know where a phonics assessment is likely to go with these pupils. If you hear a pupil read for a minute and particularly if you, or a couple of minutes, and you do this with lots of kids, you start to notice that, oh, actually this kid's really struggling with blending. They're, they seem to be fine with um, recognizing the relationships between letters and sounds, but how they work, no, they're lost. They need support with blending. Or you might say, yeah, this kid's decoding individual words accurately, but it's very slow. This is purely a fluency issue. I need to give this kid uh, monitored practice. So even if you don't do phonics assessments as part of your systematic approach, though I would advise that you do for these pupils, you can get a lot of this information from fluency assessments. And the best thing about regular fluency assessments alongside regular comprehension assessments is that it puts teachers in a situation where they have heard every pupil read, usually at the start of the year. So I think that's a really good way, firstly, to get to know your class in terms of their reading capabilities, but also in terms of their uh, confidence in uh, reading as well. So to sum up, a systematic and I think fairly pragmatic way of looking at assessment across the school is to say okay we need comprehension assessment of some form to look at progress to look at how our um, our reading curriculum is working more generally though there are other things you can do to look at your reading curriculum of course 
We need a fluency assessment alongside that to begin to work out what the individual issues might be. And we also need some kind of decoding or phonics assessment for those who are, show up on our fluency assessment as really struggling to decode individual words. So I'd say those three things are like the key aspects of a systematic approach. The one thing to note about that stuff is that's kind of what I'd say year two and beyond. And what I haven't talked about is that stage before reception and year one. And I'd like to do that briefly, if I may. In reception in year one, the things you're really looking for are spoken language development and and decoding because they're right at the beginning of their journey and the their spoken language development is a, a very good proxy for what their language comprehension is going to be like and their decoding is the beginnings of that word recognition stuff and if their phonics seems to be progressing in the way that you want it to fine if it isn't and this will be see, looked at through kind of regular informal formative assessment then those are the pupils that you want to support in terms of decoding if um, there, there seem to be fairly significant issues relating to spoken language then this is where you would start to have conversations with your um senko and start to say well maybe there are interventions that could be that might be supportive here or maybe there's something that requires uh, more specialist um, support. And the last thing to say about all of this is that this systematic approach to assessment that I, I advocate, and none of this is new, I've not come up with this, this is just sensible stuff that other people have said and, and I agree with. The other thing to say about all of this is this does not mean that this is everything that you do. This is it's systematic and pragmatic, but it's not comprehensive. There are things that a Senko um, will look, will want to assess and look at relating to literacy and reading more specifically that uh, go beyond this approach and you always want to make sure that whenever you're doing this stuff that your um, senko is in the loop in case there are um, other things that you want to dive more deeply into and find more about but you as a classroom teacher or a literacy coordinator or reading lead don't have the expertise to deal with there and there that's fascinating stuff chris there are a few things that that stand out to me and i think i've got two questions but they almost link together so we're talking about how things are relative to peers in terms of where we expect pupils to be. Does, does that mean that in different contexts, perhaps different parts of the country, you might have different expectations? And am I right in thinking that the fluency research up until relatively recently was conducted in the United States of America? but that there might be an English equivalent? And, and does that relativity match up on a national scale as well as on a local level? So I'll answer the first bit first. I mean, ideally, you know, a, a struggling reader is a struggling reader, and we're probably more likely to be looking at a kind of a, a national basis and saying that actually a school in one area might have 40% of pupils that we think are struggling, and another school, it might be, five percent and um this is you know one of those interesting things when people talk about uh, when sorry when Ofsted talk about the 20 percent that schools need to focus upon and some schools interpret that as well it's the 20 percent of our readers full stop that we need to make sure we're doing something for I'm pretty confident that that's not what Ofsted mean they mean as a rough rule those 20 percent that are struggling the most you know nationally and what that looks what uh, percentage that is of your co um, of a given cohort in your school is likely to differ but in pragmatic terms the reality usually is that you've got a certain amount of resources and when it comes to supporting pupils and if you know 90 percent of the pupils in your school are really struggling to read it isn't likely that you've got nine times as much of the kind of teaching assistant time and time to deliver one-to-one -one support and interventions as a school that's got 10% of struggling readers. So while um, it, the percentages in your school might look uh, different uh, and, you know, the and while we should be looking at kind of more national picture to get a sense of where our pupils are at, the reality is that we make decisions when it comes to prioritization that is based in our school and it might be that you can support a particular like 30 or 40 percent of your pupils to a really high level 
in terms of intervention and those above that need to work in the classroom or it might be 20 percent, or it might be something else but yeah if in doubt i would say you're looking at things on a kind of a more national level to get a sense so that you're not you know swayed too much by your local circumstances or um individual cohorts at a given moment in terms of these like this national picture it's definitely true to say that um the research done by Hasbrook and Tyndall that looked into um, expected fluency rates um, was done in the United States. And that's been, um, I think it was, uh, there's a, a brilliant little translation that Neil Armand did of that. And you can find that on Twitter, which takes that and says, well, actually, if that's grade two in the United States, then that is the equivalent of year three over here. Now, it, now it isn't perfect, because, and nor could it be because of the different types of reading instruction, the ages at which pupils kind of begin phonics and, and this kind of stuff. But it's also worth noting that um, organizations like Fisher Family Trust have done a lot of uh, have done a lot of work in terms of fluency and fluency assessments over the last couple of years and are building up a fairly extensive body of knowledge that is applicable to um, kind of England um, I think it's England rather than kind of the UK more broadly I'd need to check that and I like to think that that kind of information is going to be disseminated into the public sooner rather than later which will mean that it's easier for a school in you know be it Plymouth or Newcastle or wherever it might be to be able to say well where should our pupils be roughly at this point with of course all of the caveats that I've already um, said and put in place about the fact that that stuff is purely based on age norms rather than anything that's set in stone. I mean, that, that makes a whole lot of sense and makes the picture clear in my mind. I, I really like that national level comparison. When you're talking, it feels a lot like early years in as much as when I'm teaching a child to count, I've got my three core so to speak, principles of counting, and perhaps two additional ones, you know, depending on where we are. And it's really the skill of the teacher during a counting activity in drawing out what's missing. Is that the case in the situation you're describing? It felt as if people should be able to go somewhere. And does that exist in a place or will people have to look for those? So in terms of Comprehension assessments, fluency assessments, and phonics assessments, which I think you're kind of referring to here, I would say that uh, unless I'm mistaken, there needs to be a phonics assessment that comes as part of a um, your school's phonics program. So I would lean into that. Again, there are programs out there that you know you can use that uh, do that provide a phonics assessment that is aligned with your school's phonics program. It's worth noting though, that when we're talking about an assessment of phonics that's aligned with your school's phonics program, that alignment only really matters for the first couple of years because you're saying, oh, okay, I've, you know, we're halfway through year one, we've done this much of the phonics program, our pupils on track. And when we say it aligns with your school's phonics program, all we're saying is, well, they've learned this sequence so this they're up to this stage in the sequence they've learned these grapheme phoneme correspondences so that's the stuff we need to assess and because different phonics programs deliver them at different times and in different orders the assessment has to align with that but once a kid's in you know year three year four year five you can you don't i don't think it particularly matters if you're using the phonics assessment of your school i mean ideally do so because it will be there it will be available but once kids are a bit older, a phonics assessment is a phonics assessment. You're looking at common grapheme phoneme correspondences. Do they uh, recognize them within words? Can they blend words? And ideally, in, in polysyllabic words, are they able to decode those as well? And that is likely to involve them kind of chunking those polysyllabic words on some level. So then being able to say, OK, here's a word like beautiful. I can look that as beautiful. So they decode that piece by piece and then then push it together. Um, and being able to flexibly break words into syllables is a really useful skill for kids. And some kids take that quite naturally and some really benefit from 
explicit instruction and really need that more than others. So yeah, that's one of those things to, to look out for. Just one thing I'd like to add as well. So I kind of talked about assessment and then what we do as a result of assessment um, all kind of rolled into one. So if I may, I'd like to just quickly consolidate that. So I talked about comprehension strategies if fluency seems okay, but comprehension's a bit off. I talked about fluency practice, i.e. one-to-one if possible, or perhaps small group monitored guided reading with feedback for pupils whose fluency isn't where you want it to be, but decoding of individual words seems fine. And then for those who are struggling with uh, decoding individual words, we're looking at particular things. If it's code knowledge, we teach that. If it's, and ideally, if necessary, we are then looking at the sequence that's part of our school's phonics program. But it might just be the blending's a problem. If so, focus just on blending. It might, they don't necessarily need to go through the steps of the phonics program, grapheme, phoneme, correspondence by grapheme, phoneme, correspondence. They might just need lots of practice of blending. Equally, polysyllabic words might be an intervention that is supportive there. The reason I mention that in particular is that so often when I've worked in kids further up the school, and you'll have heard me say a lot of times now, regular listeners, so often it's blending that's the issue. When it comes to word recognition, it's blending. It's not code knowledge, it's blending, and it's often blending of polysyllabic words. So that's something to keep an eye out for. But while those are kind of interventions that you can do as a response to particular issues that you've assessed there's obviously other stuff you can do you know if a, if a pupil has a fluency issue in particular and that's what's holding them back then that's a useful conversation that you can have with parents at parents evening to say actually you know what i know we've got this homework and this homework and this homework and this homework but for a term or two if you could focus on supporting us with reading at home um, if at all possible fantastic and we'll keep tabs on that and we'll communicate about that if that's helpful equally you could start thinking about um i guess this is still a sort of intervention but a slightly different way of thinking about it some schools have parent helpers or governors who come in who will read with pupils having that list of pupils who struggle with decoding or fluency who you think well that's my um struggling readers list or my vulnerable readers list it's often called they're going to read with an adult as often as we put, can possibly um, support them to, because there's lots of good things we can do in class and there's lots of good things we can do in small group, group interventions, but nothing quite beats one-to-one -one reading with an adult who is trained to support. And that brings me on to another quick point. It doesn't take much training for a um, an adult, be it a parent, a, a, a volunteer, a teaching assistant or a teacher to really maximise what they get out of one-to-one -one reading when they're supporting pupils. In particular, getting them to um, model how to decode an individual word when pupils get stuck, encouraging pupils to um, summarise or ask questions as they're reading to make sure that they are kind of comprehending or attempting to comprehend as well so doing those things is yeah just just an, another another thing to add to the list of jobs that a um a reading lead or a literacy coordinator or a classroom teacher might consider nice i mean those sort of roles were one of the first to go during the pandemic because the demographics certainly in my experience were amongst the most vulnerable at the sort of the peak you know because of the age bracket that they would typically fall into you know they're normally retired they want to come back in they want to give support to the school or the community that they've sort of had success in. And so I think, yeah, hopefully those are starting to come back into to schools. Should mention that Neil's talk on the Tadape YouTube, not not his most recent one, his first one, about which is just more about reading in general. It it references that paper and it shows you his uh, thing. So if anyone was interested in, in Neil's comparison between the, the sort of fluency rates in grades and, and year groups, uh, well worth checking out. Just to drop in there before we move on, there are some, uh, by the way, keep an eye out in your local area. There are national programs that attempt to get local um, local people kind of get them CRB checked and say, OK, brilliant. Let's get you into schools to support young readers. So keep an eye out for these programs. I mean, it seems to me like a little bit of low hanging fruit that's potentially out there. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of people in their later years who I'm sure would be delighted to work in schools and to come in and volunteer and to uh, make a continue to make a really valuable contribution to their community. And 
you know, there are lots of schools that would be absolutely delighted for the support. So, you know, if anyone from the gov government is listening and thinking, mm, I wonder what a larger scale scheme could be to support this, it's perhaps something to look into, because I know that some areas have done this sort of thing quite successfully. How long do you think the Chris Such training video will be? 10 minutes? Oh, on how to read one-to-one -one with 10 minutes tops. I, again, as with anything I'm talking about today, the assessment, um, bodies of knowledge behind reading, you can go into it in infinite detail. <laughs> and you could just go on and on and on. But there's a pragmatic kind of stopping point. And I think for that sort of thing, you go past about 10 minutes and um, it's too much to, to take in in one go. Um, and so it's, you know, you've got diminishing returns. But yeah, 10 minutes tops. Nice. We could sell that for charity. So there's something to think about. Yeah, well, the one downside to that and the one reason why I've not actually thought about doing something or I've not done something like this already is that when you're doing one-to-one -one reading, and I guess this is something I should have already uh, noted, when you're decoding words with kids, there might be particular gestures that are used at, at different schools um, compared to you know the phonics program that's in place. So for example, I know some phonics programs will, when decoding a word, they'll use something like a chopstick or a pencil and they'll point at the individual letters. And then when they come to blend the whole word, they'll then slide that underneath. So it's dot, 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 slide. And so if that's the, the routine, the gesture that kids are already really familiar with, makes sense to do that in uh, when kids are reading in school um, and that's kind of one of the things that you would drop into that pro into that kind of support you'd give to parent volunteers teaching assistants etc so because that's a little bit school specific i'm slightly um reluctant to try and do something um nationwide and also why should anyone listen to me in the first place so there's there's that as well Interventions naturally involve pupils missing out on other things. How do we balance this with our desire to support children to read proficiently? It's a really tough one. Um, I spent a, a decent amount of time reading and then rereading um, the EEF's report on supporting pupils with special educational needs and disabilities. And one of the key things that comes up there and comes up in conversations with people who really know their stuff, like Cassie Young, is that there are drawbacks, of course, to pupils being taken out of their classroom setting in order to do an intervention. You are, of course, taking them away from their peers. You're taking them away from a history lesson or a PE lesson or whatever it might be. And so there are trade-offs and we have to be really careful. So what do we prioritise? Which things do I think... And this isn't me, you know, parroting research here. This is just me responding to my experience and yeah, what I've read in research, but it's kind of my take on it. I think it's perfectly sensible to prioritize making sure pupils can read with a degree of fluency. And that means supporting them with their decoding if they're still struggling there, supporting them to be um, a fluent reader if they require practice. Where I think it gets a little bit more debatable is when we start thinking about the bodies of knowledge relating to language comprehension. So if you look into the research relating to vocabulary development, it's absolutely the case that explicit vocabulary instruction works, but the actual like success rate in, time, in terms of how long it takes to teach kids a certain number of words isn't particularly great. I think the very best one I saw was something like um, a word for every 15 to 20 minutes that pupils were in an intervention, which sounds pretty good until you learned that pupils learn somewhere in the region of, you know, eight to 13 new words every day just from their experiences. So if you're supplementing that with three words a week by giving them an hour's worth of intervention on vocabulary, you start to think, oh, okay, is this really worth taking kids out of lessons for, especially given that then it, it, the, the time they spend in lessons isn't vocabulary neutral. They're going to be learning good stuff about vocabulary there. So while I'm not, it would be foolish of me to rule out vocabulary interventions in all circumstances, I don't necessarily think that they're a go-to for the vast majority of pupils where we think they have issues relating specifically to vocabulary not least because as i say 
you can do stuff in the classroom that supports vocabulary development. You have, if you have a classroom that is rich in discussion, then guess what? Kids are going to develop their vocabulary. Um, what I would say, the, maybe the exception to that is um, I heard a couple, someone that I deeply respect on the subject of reading, Sonia Thompson, talking about, and I, I hope it was Sonia Thompson, I apologise if I've got my wires crossed here, but talking about um, the Nuffield early language intervention and the impact that that can potentially have with pupils in reception. That works by looking at uh, listening comprehension, uh, aspects of spoken language and vocabulary as part of that. And that seems to have a, at the moment, a, a decent body of evidence. It's um, still, as with any area that's only had a few studies, fairly tentative, but it's kind of promising. So perhaps thinking about spoken language in those terms right at the start of education, maybe is this the exception to that. Equally, thinking about these bodies of knowledge relating to language comprehension, if we think the issue is that actually, when this kid reads, they're decoding their fluency, they're pretty okay, but they just don't seem to know enough about the world. You know, when we read about coastlines, they, they, they seem to not really recognize any of this stuff. And when I talk to them, they say they've never been to the coast. Well, it may well be that this pupil's knowledge of the world, which is, of course, intimately related to vocabulary, is one of the things that is um, slowing their reading development. But again, how would you even go about doing a knowledge of the world intervention? And how is that necessarily going to be better than an excellent curriculum that you're teaching in the classroom? So in short, my personal view is that Aspects relating to word recognition and, and fluency, I think, are um, worth the squeeze, as it were, whereas those in terms of interventions, whereas those relating to language comprehension are much more rarely uh, so. Obviously, the caveat to that being, obviously, if a pupil has um, particular issues relating to spoken language that might require support from um, a speech and language therapist, then, of course, those are things to be targeted. I'm thinking about the things that are quite specific to reading right now. So if we think about the spoken language proxy, and I'm thinking about very young children who I know who perhaps weren't spoken to from birth, and then as a result had manifested some of those difficulties that you're, that you're describing, do you reckon we should make a much bigger deal about the importance of those kind of conversations between parents and young children, you know, to the extent maybe that on buses, you've got posters saying, hey, why not talk to your child today kind of stuff, you know, or am <laughs> I, am I, have I missed a trick or have I missed the, missed all this information out there already? No, I, I think it's, it's certainly the case that we can't, um, we can't possibly overestimate the, the impact that those early um, relationships and how they manifest in a spoken form, the, the way that they matter to, to, to young people and the impact that they have on long-term academic and social development, be that in reading or anywhere else. Whether that um, shows itself in terms of government poster campaigns, I don't know. I would say that, you know, Bringing, dragging my kind of politics, kicking and screaming into it a little bit, I do think that things like Sure Start and when that used to exist, I'd be very surprised if that wasn't having a positive impact in these areas in supporting um, parents to, you know, to, to to do these things as well as giving them a social hub that allows them to, you know, just to understand their own child and to understand aspects of how to, to cope. I mean, particularly if you think about um, the difficulties of say being a single parent. So yeah, um, I, don't, I don't think you're wrong at all there about the, the impact of early spoken language. Um, there is, there was a wonderful book that I, uh, I think William O'Grady, um, I think it's called something like How Children Learn Language or How Children Learn Speech or something along those lines. If you type in William O'Grady, you'll find it which uh, really emphasizes the, the power and the value of these uh, early interactions. Yeah, one of my schools built its own Sure Start in conjunction with the council, and you could see the impact. I mean, obviously, my kids both went to Sure Start centers whenever they were very, very young. And you know, even on a 
it was, it was helpful for my wife to meet other people in similar situations, you know, because she was the first of her friends to have children, that kind of thing. But yeah, but th those groups, you know, for nominal cost, if any cost at all, really help children sort of develop the, uh, and certainly experience the experiences that you would hope they would have. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you on that one. How does this relate to the idea of dyslexia? Yeah, so people who are really interested in this podcast and particularly the reading element of it will notice that I've not really talked about dyslexia much because it's such a controversial topic. It's a topic on, on which people understandably have um, really forceful opinions. And so I didn't really want to talk about it until I felt like I'd really read quite a lot. The downside to that is that the more I lit read, the more, as with any subject, the more you think, oh, I maybe need to read more. And so it goes on and on and on. Um, so the first thing I'll say is don't take my word for anything I say now. A great place to start would be the uh, the, the, ch the chapter on developmental dyslexia in the Science of Reading Handbook, the second edition. If you get your hands onto that, that is really excellent. That said, I'm going to, for those who are interested in my inevitable simplification of this stuff i'm going to give it a go so we talked about struggling readers before in relative terms and we said relative to peers and the definition of dyslexia kind of works in a similar way because dyslexia is while the definition of it is not really set in stone in any one place there's general consensus on what it's like what what it is and it's most commonly defined as extreme difficulties or really significant difficulties with word recognition and or spelling because the, the two of those things are so intimately related that if you struggle to spell you are very likely to struggle to recognize words and vice versa and that's what dyslexia is we can talk about it as reading difficulties but actually it's quite specifically related to word recognition that that aspect of reading so What's, what, what's more, what more do we know about it? Well, it seems to be the case that it's very commonly associated with issues, um, with phonological issues. So issues about the uh, recognition and um, differentiation between speech sounds. And that's what we mean by phonological. We're, we're talking about the sounds of speech. So when I talk about struggling readers, why don't I say pupils who um, are diagnosed with dyslexia? Because... Those who are dyslexic are effectively those who are at sort of one end of a normal distribution of these word recognition and spelling difficulties. Why not say dyslexic pupils instead of struggling readers? Well, firstly, there are pupils who struggle to read who are not diagnosed with dyslexia. They may have issues relating to reading that don't relate to word recognition. It might be issues with reading that relate to vocabulary or background knowledge, for example. Equally, there may be pupils that have issues with word recognition, like, you know, really pronounced issues with word recognition who are not and would not be defined as dyslexic. So, for example, if a pupil arrives at school and they haven't attended school until uh, uh, before this point and no one has attempted to teach them to read and they're 10 and they can't recognize words, it would be very silly to give them a, a, uh, an assessment of dys for dyslexia and then say, oh, well, they struggle to recognize words much more than people. They're at an extreme end for this. So, you know, they're dyslexic. Well, no, the instruction hasn't been in place, which is one of the difficulties, actually, about uh, dyslexia assessment is because it has to take into account the level and standard of instruction in word recognition and spelling that's taken place before, because it has to be um, word recognition and spelling difficulties that are in some way unexpected and uh, relative to a pupil's other capabilities. And if a pupil hasn't had that instruction or their instruction hasn't been of a particularly high quality, then those difficulties aren't unexpected. Now, the other key thing to note, the reason why I'm interested in particular of talking about struggling readers is this. Dyslexic pupils, pupils um, diagnosed with or defined as having dyslexia, are... In terms of how they learn to read, they learn to read in fundamentally the same way as all other pupils. While the issue relating to their reading, their particular reading difficulties might be 
neurobiological, i.e. associated with um, some differences in the brain, it doesn't mean that the actual process of learning to read and crucially, as I described earlier, these bodies of knowledge and skills are different for them. It's just that they may take more time, more effort, uh, more targeted support in order to develop these bodies of knowledge and skills. And crucially, that means, and the, the, and the research strongly suggests this, the research that looks into word recognition and spelling and phonics, etc. Pupils who are diagnosed with dyslexia are supported by the same ways of teaching um, word recognition as all other pupils. In fact, lots of the studies that look into the effectiveness of teaching word recognition are focused on those who are and have been diagnosed with dyslexia. So in qualitative terms, the instruction is going to look the same as for other pupils. Where it differs is likely to be in quantitative terms. How much time, whether this support is going to need to be one-to-one. -one. It's also going to differ in terms of supporting pupils, uh, in terms of their self-efficacy and their sense of motivation. If you struggle with something, especially if you struggle with something that feels quite important and you struggle with it a lot compared to your peers, it's, it's going to impact your motivation. You might need to think about taking turns with reading and making sure that you're, as a, as a teacher or a teaching assistant, that you're really sensitive to their motivation to their sense of self-efficacy, to making sure that they experience success at key points, particularly towards the end of um, intervention sessions and lessons. So in the end, the reason why I'm most focused on saying struggling readers is because when it comes to struggling readers, what we need to do is find out what aspects of these bodies of knowledge and skills they are in particular having issues with and address those. And that is no less true for dyslexic pupils as it is for those who are not diagnosed with dyslexia. Doesn't seem to be anything particularly controversial there, but I know that that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it might not be. So I think you've done a really good job of explaining how, you know, everything you've said. And it's 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 an old adage, isn't it? You know, what's good for pupils with special educational needs is good for all pupils. So, yeah. you know, I think that's the way we've got to look at it. I think one reason why, just very quickly, why this um, subject becomes quite controversial is because some people say, okay, well, let's look at dyslexia diagnosis and let's say, well, hang on a minute. It seems to be the case, and I speak anecdotally now, it seems to be the case that um, pupils from more deprived socioeconomic circumstances are less likely to acquire a, dis uh, a diagnosis because sometimes parents um, feel that they're in the position to seek an independent diagnosis and that costs money. And so we end up with a situation where two pupils with relatively similar reading difficulties have two, one has a, a dyslexia diagnosis and one doesn't. And the reason for that is different is socioeconomic differences. And so it can end up feeling unjust if we are to say, I'm going to give support to this dyslexic pupil and I'm not going to give this support to this pupil who doesn't have that diagnosis. So it can get controversial there. Um, another reason is, as I say, because the support in qualitative terms is likely to be the same for uh, pupils with and without dyslexia who both have you know, difficulties with word recognition, then, well, what's the, you know, the value, as it were, the purpose of the diagnosis? Um, and what I'd say, and so people can say, so you have some people saying, well, that means dyslexia isn't a thing, which I don't agree with. I think just because it exists on an, as, as kind of a, an extreme on a normal distribution doesn't mean that it isn't a, a potentially useful diagnostic label, particularly for those who are themselves dyslexic. So yeah, you, en you end up with some people saying it doesn't exist, uh, which I think is incorrect and I think runs counter to the research. And you went, and you also have people who end up disseminating, and this is the real bugbear, bear, bugbear of mine, some really um, poor information about dyslexia. So, for example, they might say things like, um, you need to make sure that your dyslexic pupils are sitting at the front of the room because they'll have issues in relation to their attention span. Well, it, it is a uh, what's defined as like a comorbid condition in that if you are 
Uh, if you have dyslexia, you are somewhat more likely to also be diagnosed with um, issues relating to attention. But that doesn't mean that the two always go hand in hand. And to say that a dyslexic pupil will have issues with attention is just just wrong. And there's also lots of science, like pseudoscientific bunk that gets put about with regards to dyslexia as well. But if you take away one key message, it is look at pupils' individual needs relating to those aspects of reading that I've described and then address them. And that's the same for pupils with dyslexia and without. And do so, you know, with sensitivity and with one eye in particular on this, on their motivation. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about actual cultural capital, there seems to be a fair amount of cultural capital necessary in the whole diagnosis game and a, and a fair amount of habitus to push that diagnosis over the, over the line, you know? So, yeah, <laughs> I see where you're coming from. So I think the big question, what should we do in the classroom to support struggling readers? So the slightly mundane answer is all of the stuff that makes high quality reading instruction in the first place. So that means thinking about making sure that pupils experience a great deal of text. You know, they have meaningful, um, varied experiences with text and lots of them that we are teaching a coherent curriculum and a well thought through curriculum that prioritizes higher order concepts that we really want pupils to grasp from our curriculum because we think that they are more valuable and they speak to a larger array of things. So we're developing their background knowledge, which obviously supports reading, making sure that we're reading aloud to pupils, not least because we want to model these, the joy of reading and reading habits, but also because of how it potentially develops their um, language comprehension and all of the elements of language comprehension. Thinking about spoken language in the classroom as well. I think this is something that doesn't get spoken about enough. The idea that it's really valuable to support pupils to express themselves and to listen to their peers because it's a key way of supporting language comprehension and thus is a key way of supporting um, the kind of foundations of reading development. So beyond making sure you're teaching a really good curriculum and a big part of that is your reading curriculum, the one other thing I've noted is I think that I'm a big advocate of supporting fluency development in the classroom. I've mentioned already reading breadth, but I think a key part of that can be repeated oral reading for pupils. I think of all the areas of our curriculum that require support for readers who are struggling a bit i think the way that we do fluency practice is one to look out for firstly making sure we're doing fluency practice for those pupils who struggle with this um, in particular with fluency and word recognition for its value but then thinking okay if i'm for example going to put pupils in pairs am i making sure that this um, struggling reader is working with a supportive partner when I'm you know taking my thought through route around the room am I making sure that I'm seeing them more often am I getting there to hear their reading to give them that sense of encouragement a little more often are there circumstances with that kind of reading and reading across other parts of the curriculum where I think you know what it'd be really useful if this pupil and I or this little group of pupils and I read this together first you know, a little bit of pre-teaching or pre-reading it might be a valuable thing to do depending on the circumstances so th th there are absolutely um things you can do the last thing i'd note is across the breadth of the curriculum and i think teachers do this naturally but i'm going to mention it anyway if you are doing something that that asks pupils to do some reading think ahead and think well how is this pupil going to engage in the lesson how am i going to make sure that they can be involved in this lesson and ideally how am I supporting them in a way that also supports their reading development rather than says, I know that they're not going to be able to read this. I'm going to do something else that doesn't support that. So instead of just saying, you know what, I'm going to read it to them, finding a way to make that time to do a bit of pre-reading together or reading with them where you're pointing at the words and talking and giving them the chance to read back certain sentences. Now, this might seem pie in the sky in terms of how you logistically organize this. So, yeah, that sounds like an ideal, but getting as close to that as you can with the support of other adults in the room, if you're fortunate enough to have them, is, I think, the way to go. 
it wouldn't be a reading episode if I didn't relate it directly to my own experience of learning to read in other languages. So, you know, listeners, if they have listened to the other episodes, will be familiar with uh, my Spanish journey. At the minute, I am trying to learn German as well. I picked it because it's significantly different in terms of the structure of the language. So I'm not going to get confused. You know, for instance, if I try to pick up Italian or French, I might there might be a lot of overlap too soon. And at the minute, I can only really read short little dialogues about Peter who wakes up at six in the morning. He drives to work in his car. And he, you know, he works in this place and he gives me in a couple of different tenses. So get it in the third person, the first person, you know, etc. It really bores the life out of me, but I know I need to do it. What role does reading for pleasure play in supporting struggling readers? Yeah, it's so the very first thing to say is there is obviously a relationship between reading for pleasure and a person's capability as a reader and it won't surprise anyone that I am a firm believer in the idea that you need to make sure that pupils become capable and confident in reading if you want to maximize their chances of developing that sense of reading for pleasure and it isn't necessarily the case that I'm saying that competence or you know capability comes first but if in doubt, that's the place to focus your effort. But fortunately, we're in a, a job, we're in a role where we don't need to like prioritize in that way. We can do both. And so we can be showing pupils all the time that over the longer term, that's where we want them to be. This is what reading can sound like. This is the pleasure that we can have from reading. And we can do that by reading aloud to pupils. We can do that by showing them the value of reading in uh, across the curriculum, the things we can learn and think about texts and, of course, uh, about ourselves. So, yeah, we can model that reading is valuable in what we do. And there's, there's loads of things that we can do for reading for pleasure. And I have um, catalogued them all in the past, so I won't go through them again. But I would say, first and foremost, know that if you're just focusing on the reading for pleasure side and hoping that that will, on its own, trigger this capability this confidence this um, eventual kind of fluency then you're probably on a hiding to nothing for the vast majority of children but that doesn't mean that this cannot be a, a catalyst in what you're doing but going thinking about the um, analogy of a chemical reaction a catalyst on its own doesn't do anything without without reactants it can speed up a reaction it can make something work more quickly but it's not going to it's not going to make the reaction happen on its own you need to still be you know thinking about what is it that this pupil is struggling with as a reader how do i support them with it and if you get that in place then the expression i've used a few times now is it's a bit like pushing on an, an open door in terms of developing their reading fluency once they're good at it get kids good at reading and you'll find it so much easier to actually get them to enjoy what they read and to find things that they are willing to read for pleasure. It feels to me as if if there's one thing to take away from this episode, it's identify where the issue is and address it. Have I interpreted what you've said right, Chris? And if not, is there anything else you don't want people to really think about and take away? Yeah, 100%. It all comes back to identifying what aspect of a of these bodies of knowledge and skills that underpin reading is causing the issue and addressing that. And that means certain things to recap. It means thinking about how systematic your assessment system is across the school. It means making sure that you and your teachers understand reading broadly enough and the components that underpin word recognition and language comprehension and kind of fluency as the bridge between the two of them so that you can spot what these things are more readily so that you know you aren't just relying on these broader assessments you've got some in, uh, like informal day-to-day -day assessments to kind of feed into that as well but yeah in short whether we, whether it's with uh, pupils with particular reading difficulties whether it's with pupils who you think actually their reading's okay but there's just something that they seem to struggle with whatever pupil it is with find 
what it is that's causing them difficulties and target that and see if you can make a difference in that way. As always, it's been really fascinating talking about this. I'm sure this won't be the last time we discuss reading. Well, we say discuss. Not, it won't be the last time I listen to you tell me all about reading <laughs> because you know, I, I literally could go on all night. I mean, we said this is going to be an in and out in 30 minutes and it's probably longer than the art and science of teaching primary reading 2.0 <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Yeah, you know me. I always say, yeah, it'll just be reading. It'll be nice, quick, 30 minutes. No, I, I underestimate how much I like to waffle on this stuff. So, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to do so once again. No, massively, massively invaluable. I know it'll be for lots of people. All I have to do is say thank you very much for joining me, Chris. Yeah, thanks again. Always a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review. Particularly important now that the Twitter algorithm has gone into complete meltdown and everybody gets sent directly to the for you in inverted commas page. And so, you know, any signal boost via reviews, wherever you're listening would be really appreciated. But until next time, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.